This is Coder Radio, episode 373, for September 2nd, 2019. Welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm pleased to be joined by Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hello, Mr. Payne. You know, I'm very glad to have you here down there in Florida as a hurricane approaches, so... We better make this a quick one today and let you get back to prepping. That's right. We're battening down the hatches and we are making sure our programs are memory safe because Dorian is coming. Now, let's get things rolling with some feedback. We've got a letter in from our pal Joseph asking about getting started on .NET. Hello. At my job as a system administrator, I tend to interact with a lot of developers pushing out new content to websites. We are primarily a Microsoft shop focusing on .NET development on Windows servers. My question is, what's the easiest route to get started? When I started looking online, there are so many different language choices out there. C-sharp, F-sharp, ASP. In your experience, what's the easiest way to get started? And Mike, this just screamed Mike question to me because, you know, you've been down this road. And we've talked some a bit about .NET development, of course, but what about the, you know, this person, someone maybe familiar with the operational side of things, but not so much the programming side, where where would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of a two-parter, right? For the language, um, as much as I would love to tell you to look at F-sharp, the truth is there are just so many more resources uh, for learning in C-sharp, and it basically is the lingua franca of the Microsoft world. Now, in terms of educational resources, if you were doing Azure, I would definitely recommend you check out our Linux Academy plug, plug, plug uh, course. But since you said you're doing Windows Server, which I'm guessing means on-prem, actually check out uh, MSDN's Channel 9. It used to be channel9.msdn.com. I think it's now just Channel 9. So if you uh, go ahead and Bing that, since we're talking Microsoft, you'll you'll find it. They have a lot of tutorial videos. There's also a um, MSDN developer, and I think this is actually now called Visual Studio Developer YouTube channel that is really good. There's a uh, specific sub channels for Xamarin and for uh, .NET Core in particular has a very active YouTube channel. These are all great free resources. I, I would maybe start with channel nine and then go over to uh, YouTube, but you'll find it. Microsoft and um, even the .NET Foundation have really gone out of their way, or at least members of that community have gone out of that way to you know, make onboarding resources um, readily available, particularly for .NET Core. So if you're thinking of transitioning, I know you didn't mention that, but just you know, as .NET Core is becoming the standard above regular .NET for server-side applications, um, I have to guess that that's somewhere on your radar. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point, right? If you're thinking about the, the future, you should probably be thinking about .NET Core. All right, well, that's some good advice. If anyone else has some, some feedback or maybe some tips on how they got started in .NET, well, you can send that our way over at coder.show slash contact. Now, Mike, our next bit of feedback uh, has some opinions about Rust. Yeah, this was a great email from, and I, this is a direct quote, a fellow hacker man. Um, 
I am not going to read the whole thing just because we're on a time constraint today, but I think there's one section that's particularly interesting. Uh, so, quote, the primary issue here, here being uh, with Rust's, uh, Rust's approach to memory safety, is that most of the work to prove that safety beyond trust me blocks is pushed onto the developer instead of having the compiler insert protection surmised from uses of the data structures outlined in the new source. The second part, after all, it can only prove what it is shown and not what it assumes. So this is interesting, right? And, and we're getting deep into the whole, like m the most common issues in production applications tend to be memory safety type issues, right? Yeah, we've talked about that a bit in the past. There's more and more research finding that those are a substantial problem in real co code bases out there. Yeah, in fact, uh, our our uh, our fellow hacker man uh, actually goes on to recommend a paper, uh, "The Meaning of Memory Safety," by uh, Arthur Azevedo de Amorum. If I butchered that name, I do apologize. Which is a basically a comp sci paper that has a different approach to memory safety. But this is becoming a, I guess I would say this is becoming a consensus in the industry, uh, both on the academic side and the more um, you know, practitioner side, that most common issues are memory issues. Now, the author seems to be suggesting that Rust is making the user do a little too much work to get that benefit. That's interesting, right? Especially when I look at the rest of his email and he talks about what would a language that didn't put that on you look like. I have a feeling that the, our fellow hacker man is basically correct, that what Rust makes you enforce yourself via the compiler, you know, in five, 10 years, there's going to be some either new version of Rust or just new language completely that I hate to use it, but uses some like machine learning or whatever, right? To do exactly what he says and just infer the right kind of protections without you having to explicitly, you know, go through and do all the, all the kind of guardrail stuff. Um, we're not there yet, though, right? I mean, it's interesting because this whole idea of your tooling be able to infer what you want, like that's all that's the whole push on Visual Studio 2019, right? That they're having IntelliSense is not being powered by AI. Oh boy, that's a that's a little buzzword soup right there, IntelliSense AI. I'm not sure I completely buy that, <laughs> but yeah, I think this is where we're going, right? Because it 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 just makes sense if the if this issue is so big that it's the the you know the widest surface area for production issues then absolutely um we shouldn't have to do it by hand and yeah our tooling should do it whether that tooling is at the editor or the language level i think that's going to be an open debate going forward but i just don't think we're there yet i i so again a fellow hacker man i agree with you for the most part um i just i i think the time scale is going to be five to ten years on this it just makes me think, uh, you know, he, he links to, um, as highly recommended reading, uh, a paper titled The Meaning of Memory Safety, which sort of explores, you know, a rigorous definition of what it means to be memory safe and uses, um, you know, some theory, theorem proving based languages to sort of go build a language on top of that. And, and that's an interesting idea. And I think it's important that, you know, it's great that we have Rust. It's awesome that we're normalizing some of these things, adding these abilities, making developers familiar with this, but it's by no means the end goal, right? We are not yet at a time where things like formal methods are widely used. That's picking up. I think that's changing, but there's this, uh, you know, we have a long way to go. Well, I, I would also like take this a step, a step more meta here and say there is no end goal, right? What we think is amazing today 
is going to be garbage to the next generation of developer. And what they think is amazing will be garbage to their, their quote unquote descendants. Right. I, I think this is, um, I'll use another buzzword since I'm playing bingo today, a situation of continuous improvement, right? We're always going to be making our tools better. Languages are always going to help us solve these problems more. And yet it is true. And this is coming from an objective C lover that we have gained a lot, I would say in the last 15 years. And yeah, into the next 15 years, we're going to gain more and it's going to be great. And we should all be happy. Well said. All right. Well, uh, our next bit of feedback is someone who's not so happy with you, Mike. How unusual. <laughs> right. That's never happened before. This is all after you expressed some opinions about macros last episode, 372, crystal clear. Now, over in Coder, our Coder Radio subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com, code sections writes, Um, Mike, I'm not sure how to break this to you, but Rust very much has macros. And, you know, I'm mostly joking, but it sounded a lot like you were contrasting Crystal and Rust and saying that you didn't like that Crystal has macros. Now, really, I'd just love to hear more about why you dislike macros. Personally, I view Rust's macro system as one of its biggest selling points. I've written more than a few myself, and every time, they've simplified my code in ways I couldn't have managed without them. Ooh, so this is, okay, so this is a big question, right? So there's a few pieces of this. Yes, I'm aware that Rust has macros. I can't say that I've never used them, right? Which is, I, I thought what I, what I said last week. I have, in fact, done some macros and other bad stuff. You have to remember, though, I'm coming from a, a position of having a lot of Ruby experience, where what we would call macros in other languages, um, and I know this is kind of an unfair, Eh, this is actually not an unfair comparison, but like monkey patching was a real problem for a long time in Ruby. So the reason I didn't like the way Crystal presented macros, maybe we should just back up a little bit, is that I thought they were overemphasizing it in the way it's presented. It's making it seem like it's something you should do all the time. Uh-huh. Okay. It is just my belief, because I think the truth is there's multiple things you could be doing here, right? Um, I think that should really be a tool in your tool chest like i said i use it but that's that's not the first thing you go to and i can tell you coming from the ruby world features like this have been overused and have wreaked havoc on production codebases no i don't think i ever said thou shalt not use macros but i don't think you should think of it first right i i definitely i definitely feel like it is a dangerous feature i guess is what i'm getting at right you know, it's the jigsaw in a wood shop. I don't know if you've ever, you know, done any woodworking, but it is a a pretty powerful, um, pretty precise tool that you can do a lot of cool stuff with. It's also one of the tools that people most often get injured with. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for that, right? It 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 can be very useful uh, to have in a language and can allow a lot of experimentation or DSLs or, or or clean up better, more expressive APIs. But you're right; it's it's something you reach for only when that's the only thing that will do. And after you've already learned the language, learned to, you know, sort of work within the boundaries, much like with writing anything, right? You got to learn the rules before you can bend them. Yeah, and, and I would say, like, my, my, my biggest kind of hiccup with how macros were presented in the Crystal um, documentation and in the, the various guides I read was that they were presented very early, which I guess you could say someone looking at Crystal in 2019 is probably already an experienced developer, so you should trust them. I don't. 
right? It's just my opinion that that's the kind of feature you ought not use unless you've very mo- really, really have a good reason. Um, which again is an opinion, and you know, I have seen beautiful Rust macros. I have written Rust macros that made my life easier, right? Wes, you made a good point. It makes your code cleaner because sometimes you just need to do something, and like not using a macro would be spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe you have to repeat yourself a whole bunch because the language you're using doesn't sort of let you extend in a natural way in some area, and you can sort of templatize that with macros. Yeah, it, it, see, it's weird, and I think there's some overloading of terms here too, because like. Their macro, yeah, we're going to get way too deep into language specifics on Ruby, but people have justified very bad practices in the Ruby community by calling them the equivalent of macros. And we can end up in this weird philosophical debate about like, what is a macro? You know, I will concede the point to the Redditor that I am maybe overly conservative on this point, but not necessarily completely wrong. Right. No, it's an interesting discussion. And you're right, like in Ruby, you know, there things can go wrong. And you do have to be careful when you're changing the way things work. You know, you're you're breaking a lot of assumptions people have. And it, it better be clear what's happening. I think we none of us like to be the developer that gets put in a new code base and there's all this weird magic and non-standard stuff going on. And it takes forever to get up to speed as a result. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of, in, the, in West, I think you actually made my point better than I did. My whole thing is I'm always thinking of, you know, I have been the developer who picks up the project after five years. And I'm also like often, you know, because people don't want to hire contractors or consultants forever um, in, in some cases. So, you know, I am sometimes turning over code bases, uh, particularly when I work with smaller companies that like I've worked on for six months or a year and their internal people are going to do. And if I have a bunch of not, I, I like your term, non-standard behavior in there, well, that's going to be a nightmare for the next person. Um, and I really don't like giving people nightmares other than you and Chris. Yeah, well, you're good at that. Thank you. A uh, little, I'd just like to say a little thank you to uh, Wasa B over on our subreddit too, who pointed out we missed a link. Uh, Mike, you'd recommended the Imposters Handbook as a guide for self-taught programmers, which I think is a great reference. So sorry about that. I've been, I've added it to the show notes and we'll have it in the show as well, because why not? Yep. That was my bad. Sorry, guys. So uh, uh, Wes, I have an advertising opportunity I'd like to discuss. Oh, tell me more, Mike. You know, we have ads on our phones, we have ads in our browsers, we have billboards in the real world, but how about some ads in Terminal? Oh boy, well, I've got some bad news for you then, Mike, because... Oh no. Yeah, um, according to NPM Inc., the company that runs, you know, NPM, the popular JavaScript packaging tool, well, they've taken a new stance and plan to ban exactly that behavior. I have never been more happy about unilateral action in my life. This all came up, as we talked about last week, right? As uh, Standard, a popular JavaScript library, started showing ads in the terminal after being installed. The ads were actually being shown via another package called Funding that was included in Standard's code base. And, you know, they're, they're both developed by the same developer, and he was just trying to seek a way to sort of alleviate costs for running the project. The JavaScript community didn't really react the way that he expected, and has just mostly been criticized, especially for people who started finding these ads polluting their production logs. And, you know, that makes people rather unhappy. It also saw someone else create the first ever, at least to our knowledge, terminal ad blocker. So that's pretty entertaining, too. We truly live in a fallen world. So um, NPM's new rules, they're basically going to ban packages that display ads at runtime, on installation, or at other stages of the software development lifecycle. Packages with code that can be used to display ads, those are fine, but 
packages themselves cannot display ads. Packages that themselves function primarily as ads with only placeholder or negligible code data or other technical content. So th- those will also be banned. What do you think of this? I mean, uh, no one really wants ads in their terminal, but we've brought up many times funding is hard for independent developers. Yeah, but no. Um, something feels very wrong to me about polluting people's production laws with ads. I think just like we should all have a a coder radio agreement here and like not do this. You know, I've also seen, it makes me think of some other programs. One that comes to mind is uh, the GNU Parallel, um, which kind of like Xargs, but uh, on steroids. And they display a little banner sort of talking about how the software is development and showing how to cite them uh, unless you pass an explicit flag each time. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if there's room here or not, but it's interesting and you know, if you've, if you've got JavaScript packages, well, watch out for these new rules. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, it does go to the uh, the story we talked about last week about how many of these open source maintainers of vital packages are basically, you know, doing this work for a subsistence or less, which is bad. But this is probably not the way to get funding. Right. And I mean, I guess as we saw in this case, it didn't really work out and mostly got a negative reaction. So um, ideals aside, doesn't seem to work well in practice. All right, well, here's another story to get upset about. And really, it's actually, it's not new, um, but we both noticed people had just sort of picked it up again. It had been floating around on a lot of the aggregator sites. And that's the news back, I think, back from June originally, that Apple wants to remove scripting languages from Mac OS. Xcode 11 Beta 7 release notes state, Scripting language runtimes such as Python, Ruby, and Perl are included in macOS 4 compatibility with legacy software. In future versions, scripting language runtimes won't be available by default and may require you to install an additional package. If your software depends on scripting languages, it's recommended that you bundle the runtime within the app. Now, first things first, what do you think about the term scripting language, Mike? They're talking about your beloved Ruby here. It's something you develop applications with. Yeah, I saw there was quite a bit of uh, fervor here on, what do you mean scripting language? I don't know that I care. Uh, I mean, all they had to say was interpreted language, right? <laughs> they would have dodged the entire controversy. Um, but yeah, I mean, scripting, kind of use scripting and interpreted to be the same thing. I know it's wrong, but I, I don't know what a scripting language would be today. Is it PowerShell script? Right, bash script, like whoa. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess um, those are things you can write. That the language makes it easy to write short little programs, and maybe you can use in an interactive way. I don't know if that's required or not, but I certainly like those. So this might be a nothing burger, right? Like if the package that you get Ruby, Python, and Perl in is just like something, it's one of those things like on Mac where you type in like you know, I think if you type in Java C now, it brings up a you need to install Java. Ah, uh, yeah. If it's just something like that, where if you type in like Ruby and it's like, oh, would you like to download the Ruby package? That's fine. But it, kind of the key issue here is that the Mac package manager Homebrew, which is not official because Apple doesn't like package managers for some reason. Um, requires you to have Ruby, and it assumes because all Macs up until today have had Ruby on them. I, I mean, of course, there's the trolley, you know, uh, come to Linux, guys. Fair enough. But it seems weird, and I don't quite understand why they're doing this. I mean, I get that you want to do as little work as possible, but, you know, Macs used to be 
pitch themselves as like, this is the developer workstation. And while they never did a great job at keeping their versions of these uh, scripting environments or, or the, oh God, these interpreted languages updated, it was nice that there was a version by default. Some people I've seen speculating, you know, that that this has moved just to try to push people more onto their, their own language runtimes. Wow, but people doing things, particularly in like Perl, are not going to go to Swift. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Right, like, I, you know, all of these Perl, Python, and Ruby, you're going to switch to Swift? Really? Like, I could see someone saying, oh, geez, I'm so annoyed with Perl, I'm going to go to Ruby or Python. Yeah, that's that's the thing that happens, right? Many Ruby developers were or are Perl developers. And there's constant bleeding between Python and Ruby. But I, I don't think anyone's going to Swift from these. Like, like I, I don't... I don't understand why this would be done other than saving time. Yeah, I mean, is it just a simplicity play, you know? I mean, they're not, they weren't really updating them anyway. Um, and there is already culture, as you noted, right? Like, Apple doesn't care for package manager, so there's already this culture of, like, installing their, their bundled style of applications or maybe just even, you know, heck, getting it from the store. Well, they did this with Java when Oracle changed the license. So I, I'm not wondering. Right. Like, that's the reason they're going to fish sell instead of bash is the GPL3. So I, I, I couldn't find concrete proof, but it's either like laziness, but, you know, Apple actually does like try to do a good job. I almost wonder, is there some licensing thing that they're afraid of? I kind of, this is the... I mean, the reality of the situation is what's going to happen. Okay, the homebrew community is going to come together and fix this. Um, and I bet they're going to keep, like, you should, first of all, do not bundle the runtime with your, with your packages. That's bad. Don't do that. You don't need to make your applications or your package or your little whatever one-off uh, command line program super big. What about when you need libraries, though? So what this had me all thinking about, uh, it just made me start thinking about, like, does that just mean that these tools, you know, um, we talked about the Pi Oxidizer project, for example, and uh, in the, the which is a tool to sort of bundle pa Python apps. And in the launching blog post, the author writes, Python hasn't ever had a consistent story for how I give my code to someone else, especially if that someone else isn't a developer and just wants to use my application. So, like, can you rely on whatever random runtime? You know, if you also need, you also need to install libraries, you need to make sure that those work. Maybe some of those libraries require a certain version of the runtime. So, I mean, just because that's what I know best, in, in the Ruby world, you can put like a dot .Ruby version in, your, in whatever you're distributing, and it will warn the user if they don't have the right version of Ruby, right? Right, but then doesn't that just mean you're like, whatever the person you're trying to sell your nice little app to has to go figure out how they install Ruby? So now we're getting into dark sides of sandboxing here too, though, right? All right so there's two ways to approach this problem. What Apple seems to be suggesting is that everything becomes like Docker, where when I distribute my application to you, I'm giving you the environment that I built it on. Mm -hmm. Right. Or whatever environment you want it to run in. That's how Mac apps tend to work. If you if you've actually ever, mm -hmm. like there are there are system uh, libraries that because Apple controls everything, they know they are. Like yeah, anything else you are distributing the libraries for your application. My hiccup here is they specifically use the word scripting. So I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong because, you know, they're never going to confirm or deny until they do it. But I don't think they mean like using one of those weird, like, you know, GUI things that lets you write GUI apps in Python or Ruby. I don't think that's like what they're talking about here. I don't think that we're talking about things that end in .app where you launch them on your Mac through, through Aqua. Um, 
I think they literally mean like configuration scripts and command line applications, in which case distributing the entire runtime seems a little silly to me. You certainly can do it. Well, there is the other point, as you say, right? Like, I mean, having a default runtime doesn't mean that you can't distribute your own. All right. I have like seven versions of Ruby on my Mac. This is a solved problem. And maybe that maybe that's Apple's point. The only people using these languages are developers. And like adding one more step to set up your dev machine to save them a ton of time doing this. Maybe that's exactly maybe that's all it is, right? We might be overthinking it. It might just be they don't want to do the work anymore. They know developers will just, you know, download the uh, the languages and the runtimes and be good to go. I don't know. This is the kind of thing, though, I wish they would be more transparent on, because this actually affects people's livelihoods. Right, and maybe it makes you question, too, like, you know, is this going to keep working as a platform for me to work on? Right, is it just going to be another paper cut of, like, okay, this is yet another thing that I have to accommodate because Mac is weird? You know, it did make me kind of curious, um, aside from the Mac part of this whole thing, I was thinking about this problem on my own as well, because I sometimes have, you know, people I work with that I want to distribute things to, or, or friends, maybe a tool I could craft for them. And they're not always developers. No, you know, they're computer literate, let's say, but not sophisticated. Have you had to package um, Ruby apps before? Because I did some searching around. I, I saw Traveling Ruby, which was from the Fusion folks, although it doesn't seem to have been updated since 2018. And then I also found a project called uh, Ruby Packer. Have you used uh, anything like that? So most of the command line Ruby apps I use, we're using internally, and we all standardize on certain versions of Ruby. Or, or they're Rails apps, and, and I deploy them, you know myself to the server. Even in the Linux world, things are moving a little bit this way too, right? I mean, we've seen more and more just regular containers, Docker containers, but then also things like Snap packages and Flatpak and AppImage, also environments where you can ship a whole bunch of libraries if you want to. Yeah, which like might be the way we're going, right? This might just be an industry trend that Apple is kind of catching up to. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. We should all be running Gen 2. <laughs> Maybe we should. You know, this this whole thing has, has just been making me think, though, about, like, okay, like, what is a scripting environment and, like, what makes that different? You know, and, and we've got shells, like you mentioned, like, you're a fish shell fan too, right, Mike? And I know Chris and I both like it as well, but even just Bash is a, is a rich environment. It's a way to sort of, you know, you, you do, like, you interact. It, like, you send a query, the computer responds, and you, and you repeat that cycle. And I, I remember this, um, this good blog article by Michael Fogus, who is a, well, he's just, he's done all kinds of a, a prolific programmer, let's say, and has happened to be a co-author of one of my favorite books for learning Clojure, which is The Joy of Clojure. Um, but back back in April, he had an article titled Notes on Interactive Computing Environments and kind of reviews some of the some interesting highlights from computer history about things, you know, things like Smalltalk and Forth and environments we've talked about. But I just like this this quote that he highlights, your programming environments should be an active partner in the act of creating systems. Hmm. And I just thought that, you know, it kind of ties in with, with the way that you interact with scripting languages. It ties into the way you interact with um, maybe a rich IDE on a statically typed language, stuff we were talking about at the start of the show with, you know, with Rust and whatever whatever the future might be. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I definitely like the uh, interactive Ruby mode. Or like, um, it makes me think of, of Emacs as well, which is another example he cites, right? Emacs is is so extensible, and it has its own little language you can use, so you can build it. And people who use it well, right, they they use it for code, they use it to edit text, they use it to make blogs, they use it for programming, for, for to-do lists, for source control management, and all, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? I mean, you can, heck, you can boot up into it. The other, the other interesting thing, you, you mentioned this at the start, is... Um, is woodworking. 
Uh, and there's a there's a great talk um, by a programmer named Tim Ewalt about programming with hand tools. And it's all about sort of the, the joy of working with hand tools and having simple pieces that you can sort of, you know, add together and understand. And, you know, your example from earlier, when you have a powerful piece of, of uh, construction equipment, well, it, it is very useful, but it, it also means you can hurt yourself. And, and oftentimes you can really get by with simpler but interactive tooling. Like Objective-C. Like Objective-C. Well, I mean, it was just making me think even of, you know, just like just being in in the shell and using tools there and and how much how many affordances we have. Um, so in the show notes, we'll also have a link to a recent article, Things You Didn't Know About GNU Readline. Because, I mean, Readline is an awesome little software library. It lets you do so much. And, you know, you can, you can actually hook into it yourself. You get all that goodness. It, it used to be actually a part of the bash cell intrinsically but has obviously been sort of refactored out and now you can use it if you want to make your own sort of command line interactive application which also got me thinking you know why don't we expect better from our command line environments i I wonder if we've been a bit distracted by you know developments in sort of richer ides and so it's you know it's now just the sort of um especially nerdy maybe more Unix-focused person who cobbles together their IDE from, you know, a, a text editor and some scripts and stuff, and the majority have moved on. Well, I, I would push back a little bit, right? Like, with, with the new Windows terminal, I, I, think you're, I think you were definitely right for quite a long time, but I think people are moving back. I can tell you in the early aughts, like, the big thing was Vim, right? Like, you had to, you know, you, you ran a Mac and you, you knew Vim. You had to use Vim, right? Especially if you were doing Ruby, it was like all the hotness. Uh, Thoughtbot used to do all these conferences on it. They used to post all this crap about Vim, 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 Vim. Um, I think now in a lot of ways, VS Code is kind of taking that that mantle, which is weird because it's not a, not by any stretch a command line tool. But I'm seeing a lot of people modding it and like kind of going full, you know, Emacs beard with their VS Code environment. Um, yeah, I, I mean... Are we going to go back to the glory days of Emacs v Vim? Probably not. But I think a lot of people are using these tools still. And I actually think one of the um, one of the interesting things about Catalina, the new version of macOS coming out, is that it's defaulting to, to Fish Cell, which is going to get a lot more people using Fish Cell overnight. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, just by default, Fish is doing more. You know, like, you can tune and tweak Bash to do a lot of neat stuff, but Fish has a lot of those sort of stuff on by default out of the box and so you're suddenly like oh like it it's like auto-completing and offering me suggestions and it's bright and happy and colorful you know i often think that like the big ides are easy for people to get started with because they tend to have wizards and kind of like step-by-step setups for you know setting up tool chain which can be challenging when you're when you're new but as you get more experience the ide can feel like a prison that's not always true right like if you're doing dotnet it really is hard to find an environment for .NET that is better than Visual Studio on Windows. But particularly if you're doing these quote-unquote scripting languages, Python, Ruby. Like, I like RubyMine, I like PyCharm. But yeah, I mean, I every once in a while, I'll just do it in Vim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you ever you just ever uh, open up IRB and sort of poke around for a little bit? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Okay, so that that's where it, like, it gets back. You're right, IDs can be like a good get-up-to-speed. They can do, you know, hide a lot of the stuff you don't need to worry about as a beginner. But I think the opposite can be true too, right? Because there's like so many knobs and buttons and preferences. And, and it, it might depend if you're inheriting an existing project versus just playing around. Because I think if we had better, you know, 
commonly used sorts of like REPLs and, and interactive command lines, that might just be a great way. Because I love that when, when I'm trying out a new language, if I can just start up a session and sort of play, you know, have a conversation back and forth. Um, and so I've been recently having been spoiled by Clojure, um, there's been a recent sort of, it's called Rebel Readline, which is a, uh, it's a REPL using GNU Readline that has a rich sort of, you know, it does syntax highlighting and autocomplete stuff, and it'll indent and format all your code for you. So I kind of went hunting around for other languages I use, uh, which led me to BPython, which is just like a simple, it's not as fancy and complicated as like IPython, Jupyter Notebook style stuff, but it's just a, a fancy curses interface to Python. And so you get lots of nice stuff like colors and tab complete and, you know, sort of help you explore around like you're used to in, you know, IntelliSense style in in an IDE, but like just right there on the command line. I've also, in my personal um, development, when I've been doing Ruby, I've been playing with Pry a lot and it's, it is awesome. It's about the best thing outside of the closure world in like an interactive REPL I've, I've been able to find. Have you used it ever? I have not. What is that? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a Ruby REPL. Um, well, really, they call it a runtime developer console and IRB alternative with powerful introspection capabilities. And it is neat. So in the Clojure world, one of the unique things you, you do and the way you interact with it, right, is you, you go write some code in your editor. And then when you, you finish that little form, you finish the new function you're, or the changes to the function that you're working on or whatever, you go hit a command and then that sends it over the wire and it gets evaluated in your running environment. And while I don't quite have that sort of like networked, you know, at a distance with with Pry at the moment, you can like do everything in it. So you can ask it to like, you want to make a change, you tell it you want to edit a file. It'll pull up that file in your editor. And then when you've saved it, it'll then go reload that file for you. And then you can go futz around and play with it more. Interesting. I learned about it first when, um, because another way you can use it is if you load it in an application you're developing, um, it's got like a binding you can call, and then it just loads an interactive debugger right there. And then you have a REPL at that breakpoint that you can, you know, investigate all the state. That is pretty cool, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Look at you dipping into Ruby, by the way. I know. Well, it, it turns out that there's like a lot of libraries for it and tools based around it, so. Turns out, hmm. So sometimes the network effect is very real. Admit it, you love it. Now, okay, so totally independent of that little train of thought, I, I also had before I'd put that in the doc, I'd already added this little pick, which is maybe our final little segment for today. And that's Light CLI, which is a CLI for SQLite databases with auto-completion and syntax highlighting. And I just thought that's great too. So what does it exactly do? So if you go pop over to their GitHub page, they've got some nice little demos and uh, GIFs showing you stuff. And, you know, if you've ever had to go investigate a little database without maybe knowing the schemas that are involved... It, it just presents you a nice little interface to go poke around with. So you can, you know, go view the tables and it'll sort of auto-complete what the rows and columns are for you. And I love tools like that. Whenever you're in a new environment, you're not familiar with everything that's going on, anything that can help me get my hooks in, you know, find the threads that you need to pull to actually under, understand what's happening in this program, I love it every time. Now, if you've got a favorite command line interactive application or REPL or shell of, of any kind, well, I would certainly love to hear about it. And you can let us know over at coder.show slash contact. Coder.show also has our whole Coder Radio back catalog, and there's a lot of good stuff over there. If even that's not enough, well, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, where you'll find all the other fine Jupiter Broadcasting shows. 
And if you haven't heard yet, well, we've got a new show in the works. That's right, self-hosted. And uh, it's going to be coming out real soon, so you might want to go check out selfhosted.show and get subscribed right away. Now, if you'd like a little bit more Michael Dominic, and why wouldn't you? You can find him over on Twitter. Mike, you're... At Jimanuko. I'm there, too. I'm at West Payne. And, of course, the Jupiter Network's there at Jupiter Signal. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>